the best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Welcome everyone to the next installment of Beer with BMSIS. I'm here today with uh, Seth Baum and uh, Mr. Grasshopper, who have a, a fun show in store for us. Um, Seth, of course, is going to introduce a beverage, and then Grasshopper is going to tell us a little bit about some of his efforts in astrobiology education. Of course, I should remind you that you should obey the uh, laws of your land and uh, only partake of alcoholic beverages if you are 21 and over in the U.S. and um, whatever pertains to your place of residence. Seth is going to be presenting a beverage that does not necessarily carry such uh, restrictions. So, Seth, I'll give it to you. Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, so um, uh, the beverage I'm presenting here is uh, not uh, alcoholic at all, so uh, anybody can drink this uh, if they want to. It's something that uh, I assume exists elsewhere, but I only started drinking it after I moved to New York City because I was able to find it in the grocery stores here, but it's, uh, it's something that I imagine is, is available Broadly, it's by a company called Bolthouse Farms, and it's a uh, fruit smoothie drink. Uh, the one that I have here is a strawberry banana fruit smoothie. But what really intrigues me about this is the amount of fruit that they at least claim to pack in this uh, bottle. It's a big bottle. It's like a 32-ounce bottle. But they say the bottle itself contains like two and three-quarters bananas 54 strawberries and five and three quarters apples. And it's just, I, every time I get one of these things, I, I just imagine how they fit all that fruit in the, in the one bottle. Uh, but it's really tasty stuff. It's a really good, thick, um, uh, sort of smoothie. And so that's, uh, that's something that I often have, uh, around while I'm doing some work in the afternoon. And, uh, so that's, that's our beverage, uh, for today. Mmm, that's tasty. So, uh, with that, I have the uh, pleasure, really, of, of introducing our speaker. This one uh, really is a, a fun one for my inner geographer. Uh, so Dr. Uh, Heishan Ilangun, uh, a.k.a. Grasshopper, he uh, is, uh, his uh, parents are from Sri Lanka. He was uh, initially raised in Montreal, then moved to Florida, uh, got his uh, degrees from the University of Florida, Ph.D. in 2010 in biochemistry uh, and astrobiology, uh, including a uh, stint in uh, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, where he was uh, a lecturer at the University of Dar es Salaam. And uh, so he'll be talking a little bit about that today. But meanwhile, he's also working with a uh, an organization called Nafazi International, which is n a f a s i dot org, which works on education in Tanzania, and also a really cool one called Investors, which is i n v e s t o u r s dot org, which is an organization that combines a cultural international cultural exchange and microfinance. Uh, on one operation, and uh, so so really interesting stuff. Uh, Grasshopper's talk today is, Is Ebony an Element? 
the positive impact of science education in East Africa, a story of teaching English through astrobiology to urban woodcarvers in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, which is uh, really interesting to me. Look forward to hearing the talk. So with that, uh, Grasshopper, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you very much for the kind introduction. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Um, so pretty much I'm trying to figure out a way to do this without telling the whole story, but it really seems like I, I kind of had to start from the beginning to give a perspective onto, onto what, we're, what we really went through and what we did and how, how science education in, in East Africa is, is paramount to the development of Africa and to our own professional development here for scientists and educators in the States and, and around the world, actually. Um, so I guess I'll start out with uh, I guess my science background. Uh, I worked uh, primarily, I started up doing um, nucleoside research. We were, we were looking at DNA and why nature chose A, T, G, and C as, as the letters for DNA, U for RNA. And uh, we started making new bases, new letters. And so we made X, K, Y, Z. And, and this just absolutely changes and increases the dynamics for DNA. Through this, our next question was, well, okay, we can do the heterocycles, but what about the sugars? So then we shifted into origins of life chemistry and into the primordial soup. And one of the main questions was, where did the ribose come from? Where did the carbohydrates come from? And th this has been a long-standing question. Uh, you have all sorts of issues from stability, reactivity. Ribose is a fairly complex molecule. Um, where did it come from? How did it just happen to be in the primordial soup? So what we looked at was molecules present in interstellar gas clouds. So our, our fellow um, astrochemists pointed their, their radio telescopes and, and they found these molecules, glycohaldehyde, formaldehyde, glyceraldehyde, the hydroxyacetone, one, two, and three carbon molecules in these gas clouds. And we combined that information with the molecules that we know were present on early Earth. So namely in this, in this context, we're looking at iron, there's always a lot of iron, and, and borate. And so we were able to show that there are these catalytic cycles that are formed. Um, it's actually published in a paper in JAX, uh, June 2011. The title of the paper is Synthesis of Carbohydrates and Mineral-Guided Prebiotic Cycles. And there we show that we can actually make four, five, six, seven, and eight carbon sugars, essentially from scratch and stable. And we, we show that we can actually make ribose in situ. And so once I finished this work, I've been in school for a little while, and, and my partner, Catherine Ranhorn, had a project that she was doing in East Africa. And uh, she won uh, a grant from the Catherine Wasserman Davis Projects for Peace Foundation. And so Catherine Wasserman Davis essentially gives out, was it, $110,000 grants to promote peace in the world. So whatever you want to do uh, as an undergraduate, um, just you kind of come up with a proposal. In, as long as it follows the mantra of promoting peace in the world, you can get awarded this grant. And so she did. She, she proposed a project in Tanzania and East Africa to provide microfinance at 0% interest. And so Catherine was studying Swahili at the University of Florida and went in 2008 to Tanzania. And uh, she, she started teaching English to urban woodcarvers while she was there. And some of the students, uh, she realized after a, a bit of time, were actually sleeping inside the English classroom. And mind you, this classroom is only a couple of poles with a tin roof on it. And there's a rainy season also. There's also rats and 
all these other unfriendly items, shall we say. And so they decided to give an out-of-pocket grant her, Catherine, and her friend Parker Stevens from, at that time, University of North Carolina. They were both study abroad students. They gave an out-of-pocket loan to three woodcarvers, young woodcarvers, that kind of had an idea of what they wanted to do, but they just didn't have any access to collateral or capital. So the grant was given. They paid it back. They asked for a second grant, and instead of Christmas gifts, Katie and Parker asked all their friends and family for donations, and they got about $800, which they made into another 0% interest loan. And they paid that back in June of 2011, I believe. And uh, yeah, it just kind of took off. And uh, it, it worked really well. And the, the main difference, and this is, this is key, is that most microfinance in the world is, is guided towards women. 90, I'd say over 90% of microfinance in the world is directed primarily at women. I was even at Emory University this past week, and the Whole Foods there had this huge campaign of microfinance. And I thought, oh my god, this is great. We can even partner with them. And I opened the pamphlet to find that, no, they're, they're, they're only targeting women. So this, this, this paradigm shift that Katie and Parker started was absolutely amazing. And so with the grant, we went over to Tanzania, and we started this, this brand new project called Investors. We partnered with some people who had the exact same idea as Parker and Katie in 2008, and they were focused in Mexico. So we joined forces. We're headquartered in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and uh, we have uh, a team of, I'd say, probably 19 people at this point. And uh, Katie, you can correct me whenever, whenever you want on this and jump in whenever you want. Um, and uh, so that, that kind of took off. But our main thing was making sure that we were embedded in the community and that the community believed in us and trusted us and that we weren't there to exploit them. And that came through education. So we were, we were part of this English classroom, the uh, nafasi.org, and uh, it's kind of an informal classroom primarily made up of study abroad students who are in Tanzania. And in their spare time, every evening, Monday through Friday, from about 6.45 till about 8.30 in the evening, uh, congregate in the small urban wood carving market where um, the Makande traditional urban wood carvers would carve anything you could possibly imagine out of this naturally black ebony wood. And amazingly beautiful things. Like you can give them a picture of your face and they'll carve your bust in 3D. A 2D picture of 3D. You have very amazing brains and amazing tactile ability to be able to picture and actually carve these items. Um, but the thing is, they were in a state where they, didn't, they weren't able to directly sell their products to the tourists and make the most profit. They had to go through middlemen. And that's why they kind of wanted to learn English, so they could talk to the tourists and sell their products directly to the tourists and make more of a profit. So that's kind of like the state of affairs over there. So that was kind of the motivation to be in English class and to learn English. Plus, um, they could see that life in Kenya, for example, was, was better because everyone there spoke English, standard of living was higher, and all this came through the fact that the education system in Tanzania Though, though it says it's free for primary school, you still have to pay for uniforms and things of that nature. And there is a system called Ujama, which kind of wants to keep uh, traditions alive. And so Swahili is actually the national language and the official language for primary school education. 
And that kind of puts Tanzanians at a deficit because actually in about two months now, uh, they're going to be switching, East Africa switching over into a new kind of currency, and it'll be the East African Union. And when that happens, uh, pretty much all the good jobs in Tanzania are going to go to the Kenyans who can speak English fluently. Like, I mean, you talk to a Kenyan, you, you think they're actually from, from Britain. Their English is so proper. And it's going to put Tanzania, Tanzanians at, at the bottom of the food chain, essentially. And perhaps even you might have a cultural sweep where, uh, I don't know, it might see a, a big elimination of people because, because of this free trade sort of agreement. Um, so this kind of takes, brings us back to education. What about, what about motivating people into, into learning English through other means? So two birds and one stone. So Katie actually started this first when she was there in 2008. She was teaching the students, the urban woodcarvers, um, about constellations and the pictures that people saw in the stars back in the day. And, I mean, the students would laugh and think it's absolutely hilarious, but then they would they'd kind of see the pictures and kind of start imagining uh, what, what people were, were able to see. And so when we, when we were back there, uh, I guess, last year, we were, uh, I started teaching science, and specifically astrobiology as, as the medium for English. So I was teaching English through astrobiology. And they were absolutely enthralled by the, by the ideas about the origins of life, about the universe and atoms, and particularly what kind of kicked it off was there were, there were really big power cuts uh, these days. So they wanted to know how to make electricity for themselves. They didn't have to depend on their government to, to provide them with electricity. So we kind of started electromagnetism and generators and solar power and nuclear power and coal power. And that kind of led into, well, what is coal? What is, what is fuel? What is, where is this all coming from? Why can't we just make it? And so I started teaching them about the elements and about atoms and nucleuses and protons and neutrons and electrons. And, and one of my students, this was one of the most impacting things while I was there, one of my students asked us, well, is ebony an element? And ebony is just naturally black and very dense, very heavy wood, very beautiful, um, very expensive in the States. It's what they make clarinets and bassoons out of and guitar necks. But over there, it's quite plentiful and they carve some beautiful things out of it. And I had to tell them that, no, ebony is not an element. But it's, it's made of atoms, made of elements. And so we kind of broke that down and I taught them about cellulose and sugars. And, and that just kind of, you could see them, like their eyes just kind of opening up and just being enthralled by the idea. Then they're like, well, technically you can make anything then. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's what we're doing. We're, we're, like even, even our research in, in, at the University of Florida was, was guided towards making the first first RNA molecule capable of self-replication in Darwinian evolution, essentially the first possible form of life. And I, was, I managed to actually teach that to them about RNA and self-replication and things of that nature. And they, they just wanted more and more and more. So we just kept going on and on and on about this. And uh, while we were there, we were, we were really lucky actually. When, when Katie was there in 2008, she was able to go do a field trip to Olduvai Gorge. She took an archaeology class that was taught at the university. And it was, it just so happened that the summer program, the summer 
part of the course was a field trip to Olduvai Gorge for, I think, about a month or two. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, you, want, you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I should mention that I was um, one of the only American students taking this course at the University of Dar es Salaam. And um, for people who aren't familiar with Olduvai Gorge, it's kind of a world-famous archaeological site where um, approximately 100 um, hominid remains have been found over the last, I don't know, 40 or 50 years by people like Louis Leakey and Mary Leakey. And so when Dr. Masao mentioned that the summer program for the field school would be held at Olduvai, I kind of jumped up and went up and talked to him after class and I said, is there any way that I could go to this even though I'm an exchange student? And he said, yeah, sure, you can go. You won't get any credit, but you could definitely join if you want. And that was it. So I, so there I am in the middle of the Serengeti, um, you know, and most, most foreigners find themselves in the Serengeti in a, in a nice posh camp um, in this uh, Land Rover with a cook and a tour guide and all these things. And I was surrounded by Tanzanian college students um, and they were just as excited as I was to see the first lion or to look at the stars at night, which are absolutely amazing, by the way. So that was my experience. And we spent the next four weeks learning the basics of uh, archaeology and survey and things like that. So, yeah. Okay. And, and Fidelis Massau, Dr. Fidelis Massau, um, <coughs> is, is the caretaker of Olduvai Gorge. And, and the, this time around when we went back, I mean, he, he's a great friend of Katie's and has become a really good friend of mine. He, he invited us back for, for a field season. We were able to actually go there and 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 walk in the gorge with him, and you're walking on lava that that erupted from a volcano that erupted 2.2 million years ago, and you're and you're looking up like 25 feet, and you see 2.2 million years of history just preserved, and just striations of ash, and right under the ash you can find all the fossils of whatever might have passed away there uh, when the eruptions happened, and it's also a location where you can find uh, footprints. From from hominids, uh, Katie. What which which ones were they? Oh, that was uh, Australopithecus afarensis. Right on. And I mean, it's just completely by accident that that they even found these things. And it's just this area is absolutely magical from the perspective of sure we're doing astrobiology, but this is this this kind of helps us understand how fossils are preserved when we're going over to to moons and planets to to help us understand where to look, where these fossils would be best preserved, where to, to find traces or signatures of life. And, and this, this particular area of East Africa is just so active and such a treasure trove of, 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 of environments and of history that, I mean, I, I personally think that NASA should be, instead of going to South America to, to, the, and to these, uh, like the Atacama and stuff, you should be checking out places like East Africa where you actually have, like the soil is orange, like you, you, you can actually see um, history in place. You can develop rovers to actually try and find these, these life signatures. And uh, there's, there's very interesting things in the area such as Ulteano um, Lengai, it's, a, it's a sodium nature carbonatite lava. Uh, well, volcano. It, it shoots out black lava, which is essentially um, it's molten carbonates. And it gets kind of interesting because um, just a couple of feet below the ground in, in, in Tanzania is huge, huge carbonate uh, structures, just gigantic structures. 
Um, but in this particular area, there's more these new minerals that are unique to the area called Nyerere, right? Nyerere was the first president of Tanzania and mineral after him. And it's uh, air sensitive, uh, but it also happens to be lying underneath the area where the volcano is. So there's, there's debate whether, hey, maybe this mineral is actually uh, being melted down. Maybe it's the carbonates in the, in, in, under the soil. Maybe it's a mixture of the two. Um, and then just nearby are many, many soda lakes. And these lakes are where the, the flamingos kind of set up shop and, and have their babies. And these lakes are full of spirulina. And they're absolutely beautiful. Like Lake Natron is a, it's a dark red color. And it's so saturated with salt that during the dry season, it all just dries up and cracks. And just, you can just go walk in the lake. But it's full of these bacteria. Um, or these algae, actually, that the flamingos love eating. But uh, on a side note, um, they're full of science because there, there's so much to be learned. Uh, very few scientists have actually gone and explored and, and totally taken advantage of, of, these, of these organisms. Um, there is one story out there that, that the Tide laundry detergent, currently the, the best enzyme that's working right now in Tide, is actually derived from Lake Natron, um, where scientists went over there and kind of pilfered, according to the Tanzanian government, pilfered the, uh, some samples without permission and came back and commercialized it in the States. And if you look at the product, I mean, Tide sells a lot of, a lot of laundry detergent, and just a little bit of that money going back into East Africa could support a lot of research. So we've got to look at the future and think about the possibilities of what else is out there, what other major developments could be made or discovered uh, through proper research protocols and joining with the correct channels in Tanzania and East Africa and, and actually doing proper science. So, for example, when I was teaching at, at the University of Dar es Salaam, the students were very brilliant, very, very bright, um, great book knowledge. But the thing that they were missing the most was hands-on experience. The chemistry labs, for example, didn't have the chemical resources or the, the top-of-the-line in instruments or even second-hand second instruments. Everything was kind of being done in like a, maybe like a 60s, 70s sort of atmosphere. But they're doing good science and great experiments. But if, if you could only imagine if they had some good GCMSs, maybe a mass spec, I mean, they could do the, all the research in-house. They can go to these field sites and, and, and make magic. So it, while I was there, there were two students that I was kind of joining forces with. And if, if any of you were at the Astrobiology Graduate Conference in Bozeman, Montana in June of 2011, you, you saw their, their work. Uh, one is, uh, um, Kevin was a high school student who was uh, also a teacher in our English classroom. And uh, the other was uh, Caesar Owetu, who is a Ugandan national, but was getting his BS in microbiology from, from uh, the University of Dar es Salaam. And Caesar, particularly, he, he was actually working on a project already looking at extremophiles in oxidation lakes on the campus of the University of Dar es Salaam, and I, I suggested he should start looking at these soda lakes, and soda lakes in his native uh, Uganda, any sort of lakes and extremophile regions in, in Uganda. And he absolutely loved the idea of astrobiology. It's a brand new concept to him. And 
And uh, right now he's actually applying to colleges, rewriting letters of recommendation for him. So if anyone's got a position, let me know. But he's, he's, he's absolutely brilliant. Um, and and there, there's students over there and they really need to get over here. Um, and they would make an, an enormous amount of change once they go back to their native countries. Um, I don't know, any, any other questions? Anyone want to jump in on this? I'm struck by how you were able to make like the connection between fuels and power generation to astrobiology or some of those other links you mentioned is very fascinating to me. Not something people here would always um, necessarily think to teach in that way, but I can understand how in the culture you're describing, it sounds like some people are very just hungry for learning in some ways. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean these, these wood carvers in particularly, I mean, in particular, they... They're ranging in age from, I'd say, 14 to 72, mainly men. We had like two or three women in our, in our class. And it, it's just the necessity of something as simple as reliable energy um, helped them have a drive towards understanding the, the, the nature of electricity and this resource that was kind of ethereal to them that just kind of came through these wires. And... It's kind of disturbing because no one actually teaches anyone about what it is, what electricity is, and how dangerous it is. So, I mean, people just go and try and do their own electrical work with bare hands, no protection. And I'm, I'm just, I take a couple of steps back when they do it. I mean, we were taught not to touch bare wires, and, and here they are just going on their merry way fixing, fixing the fluorescent lamp for the classroom with bare fingers. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Hey, so Grasshopper, maybe here's a question. Um, it sounds like there, there's a couple of issues you've described that, that are quite fascinating. And one is sort of this you know, need for you know, both basic education uh, on like a fundamentals, like everyday level, and then talking, maybe tying that into basic science and astrobiology and some other big themes. Uh, and then you also mentioned the opp opportunities for astrobiology research and field research you, you know, in East Africa. Um, so I just wonder for, you know, us here in the States and, and everywhere else in European countries and whatnot, um, I mean, are there efforts now that we could tie into or are there maybe ways or do we need to seek out grants to go do field research there? I mean, how could we maybe, you know, keep the ball rolling a little bit as scientists or as people interested in education? Absolutely. So... I mean, we kind of have a, a, a simple infrastructure set up that people can actually go there, and we have the contacts in place that people can go do research. Um, I'm interested in, in, in looking for grants to enable this, to, to promote the idea of people going over to Africa, because when you, when you talk to scientists, or anyone really in the States or Europe about Africa, they're like, it's, it's like a nether region of the world. It's very uh, off-limits, very dangerous, but for Tanzania in particular, it's a very safe place. The people are very, very friendly. Uh, I, I, I'd say it's the friendliest and safest country on the entire continent. And one of the things that Katie and I were talking about was actually creating a sort of uh, exclusive tourism for, for people who'd like to experience very unique things, such as Olduvai Gorge, and having them go into the gorge with a scientist uh, and the money f that they pay for these tour fees to actually go directly into funding research at the sites for local Tanzanians and, and promoting uh, scientists from Europe and, and the states 
and South America from, to, to come over and actually get some field research done. So these things are kind of in the works, but I mean, if anyone's interested, uh, we, you can contact uh, either one of us. Uh, that'd be grasshopper at investors, I-N-B-E-S-T-O-U-R-S dot org, or katie, at katie at investors dot org. And uh, we can certainly help you guys out um, in getting over there, because it's just a wealth of, of untouched science waiting to happen. Thanks. That's, I would love to... Uh... I would love to have that opportunity. I did manage to uh, get to Tanzania once as a vacation. Oh, Definitely had a good time. No bad experiences at all. It's a beautiful country. It's 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 just amazing there. Um, but for the chance to go back to do science, I would I would love that. It's I'm almost regretting the fact that I'm a, a theoretician and not an experimentalist. <laughs> <laughs> well, come on over. We can we can put you to work with other people. I'm, I'll I'll try to make it happen. Um, well, thanks. Uh, that was great, Grasshopper. That was very informative. Yeah, that was really good. Yeah, any uh, other questions? Uh, yeah, so? can, I, can I ask a question? Yeah, it's a um, So something that was really interesting to me here, um, uh, you said that when you were uh, starting to teach, uh, teach them about astrobiology, the people there, that they were really fascinated by, uh, among other things, questions about the origins of life. Um, yeah. As you were doing it, you were uh, uh, located in uh, the general vicinity of the origins of human life. Correct, correct. And so mm -hmm. um, what I'm curious about is if that connection was made at all, if, if the people there might have a, a special appreciation for uh, origins of life questions in general because of their, their proximity to... Uh, at least where it all started for humanity, if that if that came up at all. Yeah, it's for certainly it came up. Um, it's an interesting it's an interesting topic actually because Tanzania is an Islamic country, Muslim country, and well, I would say it's probably more Christian. I think it's about uh, seventy percent Christian, thirty percent Muslim. But but the the creationism is there huge. for sure. Yeah. And that, that provided an interest. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, I think the interesting thing for us teaching this class, and when he was, I remember this this class this evening very, uh, very well, because Grasshopper was talking about the origins of life, and um, they they were really unaware that those fossils existed in their own country. Um, so we sort of had to try to translate that between English and Swahili and explain that these fossils were there and explain just how incredibly old they were. Um, and I think that, it, it, I think that really blew their mind to, to know that that was, for some of them, I mean, it was within 20 kilometers of their own hometown. Yeah. Sorry, with that, I'm curious if uh, if that, uh, the proximity then gives them maybe a, a sense of connection or even a sense of pride in uh, the, the human history, uh, maybe even despite their um, uh, views about creationism. There was this one class where we were talking... But Katie was wearing her dinosaur shirt, and it had a brontosaurus. It was a brontosaurus, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it was like always remember was the tagline underneath it, and, or never forget. <laughs> yeah, never forget. Uh, I mean, we we pointed at the shirt, and we're like, "So do you know dinosaurs?" And they were like, "Dino, Dino." I'm like, "Dino? So you know dinosaurs?" And they they're referring to Dino from the Flintstones. 
which nice. was really, yeah. We're like, <laughs> whoa, really? And and so we proceeded to tell them about dinosaurs and and meteorites and the extinction and things like that and how people can dig up these fossils and just these huge creatures that are bigger than the, this tree that was outside of our classroom. We're like, it was twice as tall as that tree. And they would just start laughing at us, just just yeah. cracking up. The entire class was rolling and <laughs> laughing. We're like, no, really, this is real. And then they were like, oh, really? And and then we started just going into that. And, and, and that's kind of how we kind of went into... Right. Um, the, the the digs at Old Dubai and into you can and how you can go there and actually see like extinct giraffes and those old giraffes had horns that were even bigger. They actually looked like the horns of uh, Chinese mythological dragons. Um, that's kind of an interesting kind of side bit to that. But uh, extinct hippos, extinct elephants, all sorts of amazing creatures out there and. Uh, so then I showed them pictures of, of the, the fossils that we took. There was a small museum out there, and then they were starting to believe. You know, once you actually see it, you, you can kind of believe it more than just a random person telling you about it. Right, and, and I think to answer your question, um, they do see a lot of, I think they do feel a lot of pride um, in, in being Tanzanian and knowing that their country houses so much history. Um, I had the opportunity last summer to travel to Addis Ababa and... I went to this amazing meeting called the East African Association of Paleontology and Paleo Paleoanthropology, and it was something like 90% African, from African scientists from Ethiopia, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, and Rwanda. And, um, you know, they, they, the, the take-home message was that it's all of our history, and I think that's something that um, Blue Marble Space really tries to emulate as well, is that this isn't just, you know, American history, or it's not, it's, it's not just, it's, it's everybody's history. And I think that helped us in teaching the class to the fact that they were so open to it. At, at first they would laugh, but once you say, no, no, this is an Arusha, and you put it into terms that they can understand, and, and you start mentioning these sites, and that they, they remember the names, um, I think it really speaks to them. Yeah, there's a definite connection once, once you actually really just kind of tie into their, their own existence where they're at, and 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 the importance to humanity, um, especially. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Katie, but Tanzanians are are some of the most genetically diverse populations on the planet. They they're closest um, to bottleneck. Is that correct? Well, there is one population there called the Hadza that have very divergent uh, DNA. Yeah, uh, a lot of them. A lot of the most divergent DNA really is the San, the African San in southern Africa. But it's kind of interesting because you have a similar click-speaking language um, in East Africa and Tanzania, this tiny little population. And we're trying to figure out how they got there. So that'll be, that might be another Blue Marble Space talk in the future. Oh, that would be excellent. I would love to hear more about uh, some you know, anthropological points of view. Um, yeah. But thanks, Grasshopper. That was uh, quite fascinating. And, and I'm certainly looking forward to being able to uh, chat with you in person a little bit more about some of this. Absolutely. Yeah. Absicon? Everyone's going to be in there? Absicon in April. Hopefully, if you're yeah. there, um, we'll get a chance to chat. So, yeah. That's about our time for the podcast. So, uh, thanks everyone for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. See you, everyone. Bye. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. 
Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives. Thank you.